So we're continuing our journey in Exodus, and as Chris probably already said, hang on to your seats for this one. This is quite a remarkable few chapters. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of, a pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have, will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in that rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. 
The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. If you keep your Bibles or your devices or your leaflets open to that passage, that will, that will help you to follow along. I've met up with a group of people for coffee recently, and um, I had to leave early, so I did the sneaky pay for everyone's coffee on the, on the way out kind of a thing. And a few days later, I was going through a bank statement and I was, I was looking through and one of the people who had come out for coffee had actually f- tracked down my bank details and paid me back for all of the coffees that were bought that day. And I saw that and, and I was really annoyed. I, I thought, how can someone be so unwilling to accept a free gift? And then I thought, well, if I'm getting so worked up about that, maybe I've got the exact same heart issue as well. And so I want to begin by asking, are you comfortable with grace? Are you comfortable with grace? Are you comfortable with getting something that you don't deserve? Being in someone else's debt? Whether this is the first time in church for you, or you've been going to church your whole life, or you're somewhere in the middle of that. We can't grasp Christianity without first accepting and understanding grace. Someone did something for me that, I can't pay back. My relationship with God is one that I haven't done anything to merit. Now, living under grace, it goes against our nature, doesn't it? Now, just to give a small example of that, we had lots of people really generously give us meals after Rory was born, which which we really appreciated. Uh, It was super helpful. 
But there was a part of me that struggled accepting free things from people without being able to pay people back in some way, without being able to make it up and, and even the score. And perhaps you can relate to that a little bit. Well, this passage that we've read takes us to the heart of the gracious character of God and the grace that we live under if we choose to follow him. It shows us that a relationship with God where we enjoy his glorious presence is possible only because of his gracious, compassionate, patient, and faithful love. And the passage begins with a broken relationship, point one there on your outline. If you were here last week when we looked at Exodus chapter 32, you'll know that Israel have messed up big time. They've created and worshipped a golden calf, uh, so they've broken the first two of the commandments that God has given them, and God is rightly furious. There's really no adequate illustration to explain just, just how bad it is that Israel, what Israel have done here. Um, unfaithfulness in a marriage is, is about as close as it gets, uh, but this is far worse. And so God tells them, leave this place, go to the land I've promised you, but I won't go with you. I might destroy you if I did. That's how angry I am. The tent of meeting has been moved outside the camp there in verse seven, which reflects the estranged relationship that's, that's going on here between God and his people. No longer does God dwell among them. Israel have been brought into a relationship with God and almost immediately they've broken it. They've proved themselves utterly unworthy. And now they're left to grieve their sin and wait helplessly as God decides what he's going to do. Now, it's easy for us to look down on the Israelites here. In fact, it's, it's a lot more fun to look down on the Israelites than to actually think that there might be a lesson that we have to learn here. But as, as we saw last week, we all have sinful hearts like theirs. We fall into idolatry. We allow things to become objects of our worship in a way that only God should. There's no one who truly loves God and truly loves other people as we ought to. The same sinful nature that led Israel down this idolatrous path is in us as well. There's some really good news in this passage, but the good news means nothing without acknowledging this bad news first. Israel have proved themselves incapable of true obedience and unworthy of a relationship with God. They can't do it on their own. They need grace, and so do we. The wonderful news for them and for us is that God is a gracious God. Now, I assume everyone here either goes to school now or can remember going to school at some point, and you'll know that different teachers have different personality types, don't they? I thought I was on pretty safe ground using a teacher illustration in the middle, middle week of the holidays when all the teachers would be away. I know there's a few of you here, so take this in good humour. Um, but there's the teacher with the, the short temper who you, you're scared to breathe too loudly around. And then on the other side, there's the teacher who's so lenient that no one in class ever behaves. Now, I wonder if one of those two is how you imagine God. Maybe you see God as being the hot-tempered tyrant who just wants to punish people. Or maybe he's the tolerant grandfather who just wants everyone to be happy. That's all he wants. Well, neither of those is quite the picture that we get of God in Exodus 33 and 34 or the rest of the Bible, for that matter. God is gracious. And firstly, he's gracious in his relationship with Moses. 
Moses is nothing special. He's, he's a murderer, in fact. And yet, chapter 33, verse 13, he's found favor with God. God speaks to him as a friend, verse 11. Not because of who Moses is, but out of God's undeserved kindness, out of God's grace. And Moses, we see here, makes two requests of God. He wants God's presence and he wants God's glory. He says, he says to God, he wants, he wants God's presence. He wants God to go with them on their journey. We're your people, he says. We need you with us. And God grants this by grace because he's pleased with Moses and he knows him. I'll do what you've asked, he says. And then in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And again, God grants this. He positions Moses in a cleft in the rock and covers his face so that he can see God's back because God's face can't be seen. His glory is too great. And without realizing it, we didn't get to these verses in the reading, but Moses comes back to the camp at the end of chapter 34 with his face so radiant with the reflection of God's glory that the people are afraid. Moses has to put a veil over his face to, to hide the glory. And when Moses appears, sorry, when God appears before Moses, he declares to Moses who he is, his gracious character. Have a, have a look there in chapter 34, verses six to seven. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So for people who had been wicked, rebellious, and sinful, for people who knew they needed grace, who were depending on God's gracious compassionate forgiveness. What precious and welcome words these would have been for them to hear. God is saying, it's in my very nature to forgive you and to restore this relationship. And so we have restored covenant, point three on the outline. When God has spoken, Moses appeals to his gracious character there in chapter 34, verse nine. And he says to God, if I found favor in your eyes, then go with us, forgive us, take us as your inheritance. And God does. He declares in verse 10, I'm making a covenant with you. Moses has brought up a couple of stone tablets, just like the ones that the Ten Commandments were written on, the, the original covenant. And God writes on them the same commandments, once again, the same Ten Commandments, He's restoring the covenant just as it was before Israel's unfaithfulness. And in verses 10 to 27, which we didn't read all of, but God provides some specific instructions to go with the Ten Commandments. And, and what he's doing here is he's highlighting the parts of the covenant that they've got wrong. It's a bit like getting a, a test back with the teacher's marked comments on there. Uh, what, what God's doing here is he's emphasizing the command not to worship other gods, as well as instructions about festivals and, and customs that point the Israelites to God, that remind them of how great God is and how worthy of praise he is. So it's both the command not to worship other gods and a reminder of how awesome God is. And so he's providing both positive and negative instructions here to stop them from falling into idolatry again. 
Why? Well, verse 14, God doesn't share his glory. He's to be worshipped exclusively. He's jealous. It's a bit like I'm a jealous husband and Alicia is a jealous wife. Now, we don't screen each other's phone calls or control each other's calendar or anything like that. But we are jealous for the exclusivity of our marriage, for the, for the faithfulness of our marriage. And, and if anything ever threatened that, we would wage war against it, as I would hope any married person would. So to sum up where we're up to, God has made a covenant with Israel. He's made a covenant relationship with Israel and they've broken it and they've proved themselves unworthy of it. God has compassionately, graciously and lovingly restored the covenant. But is this enough? Is this enough? They're sure to break the covenant again. It's just a matter of time. Is God just going to keep resetting it and keep setting the clock back to zero just because of his gracious character? Well, not exactly. Because there's more to his character than that. As we see in the, the second half of chapter 34, verse 7, God may be compassionate, loving, and forgiving, but he's also a just God. He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. Now, God isn't the, the teacher with the short fuse. He's patient. He's slow to anger. His anger is never reactive, but it's always controlled, always justified. But nor is he the teacher who just lets things go. He's just. He punishes guilt. He can't simply turn a blind eye to sin because sin must be punished. Now, the um, back end of chapter 34, verse 7 might, might raise concerns as you read this, this idea that God punishes children for the sins of their parents. It, it seems not only to contradict God being gracious, but raises questions about God's character. I think we have to balance this verse with other verses in the Bible where God is clear that children do not share in the guilt of their parents. Um, Ezekiel 18 verse 20 is probably the, probably the key one. Um, so God is objectively saying that he does not hold me guilty for sins of my grandpa, for instance. Um, I take it the significance of the third and fourth generation here is because that's, that's the span of influence within a generation. Like most of us here have probably met our grandparents, some of us perhaps our great-grandparents, but, but the direct influence within a family doesn't go any further than that just because we don't live long enough. And so one way to understand this would be that God brings punishment against sin that has generational consequences. So for example, the consequences of sins of my grandpa, grandfather might impact me in some way. We also have to balance it with Exodus chapter 20, verse five, which is almost word for word the same as 34, verse seven, except God makes it clear that he punishes the sins of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So that's making it clear that it's not just sin in general, but, but it's sin that comes from a hatred of God, a rejection of God. And it at least implies that this, this is a hatred of God that's passed down generation. So a, a hatred and a rejection of God that is passed down from grandfather to father to son. Uh, which would mean that as we read Exodus 34 verse 7, it's not saying that I'm going to be punished because my grandpa got drunk 70 years ago and stole someone's bike, which he did. Um, but I'm, I'm punished 
if, so if my grandpa was a Christian, but if he was someone who, who rejected God and who hated God and he passed that down to his father and or my father and, and on to me and I, and I shared in that, um, that I would be punished, that God would visit those sins on me as well. So I hope that helps us to, to just understand that passage in a way that doesn't contradict the, the gracious, compassionate nature of God that we see there as well. Anyway, the overall point I'm making here is that people are gonna keep sinning against the covenant. And so as gracious as the restored covenant is, something more is needed for people to be in a sustainable relationship with God. And that brings us to the New Testament. Uh, We read in John chapter one, verse 17 to 18, that I completely forgot to prompt Angie that there are slides for, but she's on it, which is great. John, John chapter one, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Through Moses, God gave his people the law to obey, which revealed something of who God is. But through the coming of Jesus Christ, God's grace and truth was perfectly revealed. His glory was shown. Jesus lived the perfect obedient life that Israel simply couldn't and indeed that we simply couldn't. And Jesus' death was God's way of providing the one perfect sacrifice that could take the punishment that our sins deserve. A better covenant, one that's not based on what we bring to the table, on our perfect obedience, but by trusting Jesus as the one who was perfectly obedient in our place. In Psalm 103, David praises God in words that reflect Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How has God separated our sins from us? Well, through Jesus. It's it's at the cross where God's grace and God's justice are both satisfied without any contradiction. Our sins are punished but we're spared. Moses and the people of Israel hoped in God's gracious and compassionate rescue. We live on the other side of it. The cross is what wipes our sins away and gives us confidence in God's forgiveness. 2 Corinthians chapter three in the New Testament shows us how this changes our relationship with God. It's, not, it's now a relationship that's not based on laws written on stone tablets, as Israel's was, but on God's Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who writes the letter, says that when people live by the law, that is when they try and earn their right standing with God by their own good works, it's as if their faces are veiled, just like Moses' face was veiled. But when someone turns to Jesus, when they accept his grace, when they accept that Jesus has done what I can't, that veil is taken away. 
They're able to, to see and to take in God's glory. This ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is more glorious than the glory that shone from Moses' face because it's a glory that lasts. It's not just one person who bears this glory, but all of God's people being transformed into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. God's glory was partially shown to Moses. It was partially reflected to the rest of the people. It's now fully revealed through the person of Jesus who died in our place to bring us into a right relationship with God. And God's glory is fully at work in us by his spirit who is transforming us to be more like Jesus. So let me come back to that question I started with. Are you comfortable with grace? Are you okay with a relationship that is only possible because of the gracious favor of God? See, just as our hearts lead us into idolatry, they can also steer us away from grace as well. Because self-sufficiency is an idol. We, we don't want to be dependent on someone else. We want to know that we can do it ourselves. Living under grace is so foreign to how our world teaches us how to live, isn't it? That our world, the, the society that we breathe around us, it teaches us that we can do it. It teaches us that we can do it. People are friends with me because I've done enough for them to like being around me. I have a job because I've proved myself worthy of it. I get good grades because I studied hard. If someone buys me a coffee, I can repay them by buying the next coffee. And if I hurt someone, I'm sure I can make up for it to them in some way. A relationship with God is different to that. Because the reality is that on our own merit, we are exactly where Israel was as they stood at the entrance of their tents, longing for God to dwell among them again, knowing that it was a relationship that they had proved themselves unworthy of. All of our efforts leave us short. All of our goodness leaves us short. We need God's grace. Nothing else can bridge that gap. Only when we understand this can we understand the cross. Because the cross strips away my pride. It strips away my self-sufficiency. It shows me who I am. It shows me that I'm sinful enough that there was no other way to be right with God. Jesus needed to die for me. Now, that might sound quite a negative, cynical view. It doesn't gel too well with the, the positive psychology of this day and age. But it makes sense of those times that we all have, no matter what our worldview is, when we're confronted with our fallen nature, when we hurt other people, when we think or speak or act in a way that we know isn't right and we wonder, why do I keep doing this? When we just know that we're not who we ought to be. The cross shows me who I am, but wonderfully, it shows me who God is as well. He's compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Forgiving my wickedness, rebellion, and sin, even at the cost of his own son. We can have a relationship with God, not 
not by our own merit, not because we're worthy of it, but because of who he is. We're going to sing about that in a moment in our, in our final song. It's called Grace Awaiting Me, and we're, we're going to sing together, I will see the world to come despite the sin that I've done, for there is grace awaiting me. We can know God and we can enjoy his glorious presence only because of his gracious, compassionate, patient, and faithful love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. We thank you that you don't always accuse. You will not harbor your anger forever. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You do not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for all who fear you. We praise you that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us. And you have done that through Jesus dying for us. Our relationship with you is not one that we've earned, not one that we deserve. It's one that you've brought us into through your grace. And we pray that you would help us to live in thankfulness and joy knowing this. In Jesus' name, amen.